turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to our podcast. This is another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego, with video production and studio provided by MaxLux Media, sponsored by Dorada Nutrition, with your host being myself, Steve Wire, a freelance reporter. This podcast is dedicated to fostering quality dialogue surrounding all things local policy related in North County, San Diego. Join us weekly as we interview political leaders, analysts, professionals, and community members on issues ranging from homelessness to housing density. So thanks so much for, for both of you for coming on today. Really excited for this episode. Linda, this is your second time on the podcast. Um, you came back with us, I think, in November um, of last year, um, around election time. Um, and um, Gary, really appreciate your time. Um, this is your first time coming on to the podcast. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce you both. So Linda, uh, Linda Mims is a advocate for reform in public policy, law, insurance, and treatment protocols for serious neurodevelopmental brain disorders. She's the founder of the Fund for Serious Mental Illness Advocacy Internships. She's um, dedicated to educating students about brain diseases and criminalization and building solutions for better medical treatment access. Um, she's also a member of the California Advocates for Treatment, Hope Street Coalition, um, National Alliance on Mental Illness, as well as other organizations. Um, she holds an MA in public policy from Duke University, a BA in anthropology from Lawrence University, and we're really happy to have her on the program today. Gary um, is a writer for the San Diego Union-Tribune. He has covered a variety of beats since 1989 and now covers the cities of San Marcos and Vista and homeless issues at the Union-Tribune. He's been a San Diego resident since the 1970s and earned a journalism degree from San Diego State University and has won numerous awards for his work. Um, any further credentials that either you would like to, to add to that or are we? Yeah. Yeah, you can add retired. Retired. Okay. Retired. <laughs> or uh, um, not, not quite. Uh, <laughs> well, momentarily, momentarily retired. Momentarily uh, retired. Uh, well, yeah. congratulations. One of the reporters who took a buyout uh, at the paper. Okay. Under, well, and uh, I just like to add that I'm the vice chair of the National um, uh, Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance. Yeah, that is one thing I forgot to mention. And that is uh, a huge part of the reason why we wanted to bring you on today, Linda, is because of the inter the intersection between the areas of mental health and homelessness. It's something that we focus on a lot on this podcast, that we've done a lot of conversation about, and it's something that we're going to talk about today. So um, without further ado, I want to get into some of the questions that I had for both of you. So first of all, with um, some recent numbers that came out on homelessness, um, the Regional um, Task Force on Homelessness released a report uh, in the last couple of months showing about a f- at least a, a conservative estimate of about 14% rise in homelessness countywide um, this year. And um, with an additional number of 15,327 people who are seeking homelessness services for the first time over the past year, which outpaces the close to 12,000 people who moved into housing. So with both of these statistics of, you know, this, this rise in homelessness and the fact that, you know, serv- demand is outpacing the services that are currently existing, um, Linda, I will sort of want to get your reaction to these numbers and sort of like what this means for our county and for our existing services. 
Well, I think, you know, as Gary will tell you, homelessness is a very complex issue, but the fact that we are pouring billions of dollars into it and we're not seeing the results that we would like to see, obviously we want to see results much quicker. And we want our homeless uh, brothers and sisters to be able to have shelter, to be able to start on some kind of a path of recovery I'm speaking for those that um, suffer from serious mental illness, serious brain diseases, and or addictions. And so it's pretty distressing to see all this money coming in and then seeing uh, our inability as a county to be able to provide shelter for people who are coming in faster than we can basically put our finger in the dike. And a lot of that I know, and Gary can discuss this better than I can, a lot of that is due to the loss of their housing, and it could be just a question of getting a slight, uh, you know, boost from the government to make their rent. Especially with the number of elderly, well, not elderly people over fifty-five uh, coming in at an it looks like a greater rate than ever before. You know, we need data. We need more data. Who is coming in? Why? What can we do at that point when they transition from having shelter to not having shelter? So I'll pass it back to Gary. Yeah. So, Gary, um, your reaction to the RTFH report about homelessness, um, you know, the the 14 percent increase over the past year and like sort of what that tells us about the current like approach and, and policy initiatives from the county standpoint. Yeah, I just want to say Linda is absolutely right about everything that she said. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's a very broad thing to, to bring up to address just what that report means. But uh, there are there's there's a lot of data that, that comes in. Uh, there's an annual report that the Regional Task Force on the Homeless does. Uh, it's uh, mandated by by HUD. Uh, it did show a 14 percent increase in homelessness. But what's frustrating about that is that there were hundreds of uh, people who were counted who were in areas that weren't counted before, and that was in Caltrans uh, property that they couldn't access before. So uh, this number was kind of um, uh, distorted. That was, uh, you know, higher than it would have been. And that, that made it kind of complex to report. But uh, I mentioned earlier in, you know, high in the story that I did this year that it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was like a 14% increase. I forgot what the actual increase was without it. But that's that's how confusing the numbers can be. Another very interesting thing about the numbers this year that I found was that I looked at the number of unhoused people, and right now it looks really bad, right? There's a lot of big encampments uh, everywhere that uh, that we see on bridges and downtown. Uh, but I went back like over 10 years, and I saw the number of people who were unhoused, uh, meaning that unsheltered, uh, rather, who were not in shelters at, on the street, had been even higher than before. Uh, so the perception of people out uh, is greater. And that could just be because they weren't doing as much sweeps as they did before, that they weren't uh, clearing sidewalks uh, downtown like they used to. I remember under Faulkner, they they did uh, abide more by the curfew, which was that you, you, know, you, you had to have your tents down by 5.30 in the morning, and now they seem to be up all day. And they just kind of got entrenched. Uh, so it looked like there was a lot more uh, tents that, that were up. Uh, well, there were a lot more tents that were up. But so visually, it did look worse. Um, 
But uh, there's also another monthly report that comes out from the Regional Task Force on Homelessness, and that shows how many people were housed this last month and how many people um, became homeless, uh, though. And the number of people who became homeless, it, you know, over a 12-month period when they first released this back in October, um, it was like, uh, you know, 13 to 10, like, uh, you know, for every 10 people who became housed, 13 people uh, became homeless. It was something like that. I can't remember, but uh, every, uh, it doesn't matter because every almost every month there has been more people becoming homeless than people who are housed. Uh, one exception was around the time that St. Teresa of Calcutta Via opened downtown. Uh, that's uh, a huge housing development that Father Joe's did. Uh, suddenly there was more people who were housed than became homeless. Uh, but then it's back to the same trend as before. And I think what that really tells us is that uh, what we're not addressing is upstream. You know, it's like, uh, and, you know, you're dealing with a crisis that you see in front of you, uh, not the one that's coming down the roads. You're, you're seeing all of these people who are on the street. More people are dying than ever on the street. You're trying to, you know, deal with that crisis. But uh, I don't think there's enough attention on trying to prevent homelessness. And uh, Lynette just mentioned that, uh, though, that a few hundred dollars more uh, can keep somebody in their house, which is a lot cheaper than putting them in a shelter or dealing with uh, paramedics who have to uh, rush out and help somebody on the street. Uh, the county uh, started a pilot program just this this year uh, after a serving seniors study found that additional $300 a month would keep seniors in their house. And that's a growing population of homelessness. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, that's with all the talk we have about shelters and about encampments and cost of housing. Um, you know, it's like one one thing I don't think we're we are paying enough attention to is uh, prevention, uh, sure. homeless prevention. In yeah. fact, uh, I've talked to some homeless service providers who are running out of money at the end of last year, and guess where they made their cuts? They cut homeless prevention, and they knew that that is like penny wise and pound foolish. You know that mm -hmm. uh, they're. You know, you're, you're going to pay for it uh, down the road. You're, sure. There's going to be more homeless people to deal with. Yeah. So one question I have is like, so both of you brought up the issue of, of funding of this, this idea that, you know, like just a few hundred dollars more, for instance, for um, a senior citizen could, you know, keep that person out of out of homelessness that, you know, you have underfunded programs across the county level. Um, but Gary, you actually wrote an article back in July um, that said that homelessness spending um, countywide has topped $2 billion over the last seven years. Um, so, or I think it was the exact number is $2.37 billion received by local governments between 2015 and 2022, um, according to a report by San Diego um, Taxpayers Group. So um, over $2 billion, it seems like a lot of money that we're investing into this problem. What's the disconnect between um, you know, programs being underfunded, you know, the, the dollars not reaching people, and how much money we're actually spending um, at the, you know, sort of macro level. So the Taxpayers Association is um, working on a, uh, a program where they are assessing how money is spent. Uh, and they're not done with that yet. But uh, the idea is it's actually it's, it's a subgroup of the Taxpayers Association, like their educational group, I think. Uh, so what they're they're studying is how is the money spent, uh, though, and uh, what, and and it's and it's a very complicated thing to to look at because how do you gauge success? So one of the things that they've been working on for 
for months is trying to determine how do you gauge success? Is it, you know, what is the outcome of somebody who, uh, you know, is in a shelter? Uh, what, what, how many people actually successfully move on to permanent housing? Uh, so, uh, they, and they've been working with service providers to come up with that uh, too. So this is an ongoing process. Um, the last thing that they reported on was what the dollar amount was. And, uh, and, and they are, they're, they're not going to like make recommendations, say, here's where you should be putting your money if you are a philanthropist uh, or a city funding, um, out, uh, fund, funding service providers. But here's what we have found, where the money's going. So they're not, I don't have an answer for that, but I can tell you that I wasn't that surprised about the money, uh, though, the amount of money. It's always been very high. It has been very, very high for quite some time. Uh, it's an expensive process, uh, uh, and we, yeah, we still see a lot of homeless people. And I, I do say that don't complain about the amount of money that's being spent, and then say it's like there's been no progress because that's really not true. That there has been progress. There's, you know, imagine how bad it would be if we did nothing and spent no money. I mean, you know. It's a total misconception, but some people think, oh, we're just enabling homeless people. Uh, you spend any money on it, and they enjoy being homeless, and they'll keep you know, uh, living on the street. And, you know, that's not true. I've never met a homeless person who doesn't want to be housed. Uh, and uh, it, the situation could be a lot worse. There are you know, many, many success stories about people overcoming homelessness, uh, sure. you know, going to rehab, uh, getting housed, uh, though, uh, it's it's not like all that money has been wasted. No. You know, it it has been used, uh, and there's a lot of success. There's a lot of streamlining that they could do. Um, there's uh, we could use more volunteers doing outreach, and uh, the rescue mission has started uh, a program uh, doing that with one-on-one outreach with people. Lucky Duck is expanding that program with uh, you know. So uh, I think that's encouraging to just have more. Uh, just more outreach, uh, too, and and I think we just need to do more of everything. Uh, sure. Though, it, it, like we 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 know <clears throat> everything that works, uh, we know what best practices are, but uh, you know, there's just so much more that has to be done. Linda, my question for you is similar to my question to Gary, which is: we're spending more money than ever on the homelessness issue. You know, um, as Gary's article points out, two point three seven billion dollars over the last seven years that we've poured in at a county level into the problem, and the problem keeps getting worse and worse. So um, Gary's answer, and um, sorry, Gary, if I'm, I'm butchering your assessment of the situation, but basically what I gathered from you is that, um, you know, we, um, th- you know, the, the solution isn't to, you know, to, to, to reduce spending, to, you know, slow down our spending, but actually, you know, continue to pour money into these programs and we actually need to do more. But Linda, like, do you agree with, with Gary's assessment? I mean, is the answer just more money or is there a more sy- systematic issue in the way that we're spending this money that has to be addressed? I think that it's such a huge problem. It's so multifaceted that we do need to really take a look at where all the money's going, where it's going, and take account of which programs are working most effectively to get our unhoused uh, brothers and sisters into shelter. And I, I agree with Gary. I mean, you don't want to cut the money off, but I think that the taxpayers want to see Okay, we want to see. We put money here. This is what's happening. Money here. This is what's happening. It's program analysis, basically. 
Um, but I would like to speak to the segment of the homeless population uh, that suffer from untreated psychosis and or addictions. And that's where we do have tools in the county that could help avert those people entering into homelessness before it ever happens. And we do not use those uh, those tools to their advantage. And one of those tools is AOT, the way we adjudicate the Assisted Outpatient Treatment Program in San Diego County is a complete failure. And I say that from all the parents who have called me, all the parents whose uh, very psychotic, sick individuals have been dropped from the program, and then mo- many of them disappear or they're on the streets. I try to help their parents. Nobody is listening because they are not using the protocols that were inherent in Laura's law, the targeted population were the sickest people, were the sickest people with like schizophrenia and psychosis spectrum disorders, brain diseases, who don't recognize they're ill and will never, therefore, volunteer for services. But the way that that's adjudicated through the IHOT in-home outpatient treatment team, they are then trying to get the person to voluntarily accept services. No, that is a terrible model. And it's not as if they have not been contacted by families, advocates, et cetera. It's not as if the Board of Supervisors has not been contacted. It's not as if the behavioral health director hasn't been contacted. They just ignore it. And it's and that could divert people yeah. into treatment before they ever, that's an upstream program, before sure. they deteriorate so badly that they end up on the streets. So there are some tools in the toolbox that our county is not using for that population. Sure. And um, I want to address not necessarily disagreement between the two of you, but more of like this, like two different perspectives that I'm hearing. One is, um, Gary, you, you made a point earlier that you um, you sort of believe that, you know, no one really is going to refuse housing services when, when offered them or that that hasn't been um, from your experience and from your reporting that your assessment is that most, if not all, people will accept services when offered. Um, but... You know, I've spoken, for instance, with the mayor of Vista, who says that in his in his city, you know, um, they, they've actually done surveys of homeless people. And um, there are a large contingent of the population um, that actually do refuse services. And these people tend to be drug addicted. They tend to be, um, you know, suffering from a, um, a brain disorder of some kind, whether it's schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or something along those lines. So um, my, my question is sort of just and either of you can can take this one. But how do you address the significant number of people who seemingly are unable to acknowledge that they actually need services, that they need help, and how do we sort of get these people um, sort of back into the system, back into these programs, as it were, when they're sort of being left out of the um, uh, out of the whole picture? Like, how, how do we how do we address like people who simply are incapable of recognizing that they need help? That is a huge question because we have an issue in our state an ideological issue where we have groups, disabilities groups that fight tooth and nail to keep people from compassionate treatment. People that cannot have lost their decision-making capacity and cannot make rational decisions about their health care and what they need to live and survive. And this is a medical issue but it's been conflated into a political issue of civil rights. 
well, you know, that is just not, that's not taking us where we need to be to help these poor people that don't even know they're ill. So Gary, you take it from there. <laughs> yeah, G- Gary, what's well, your reaction to, to Linda's comments? I don't disagree with Linda at all, actually. Uh, you know, there are people who, I think the most heartbreaking thing is talking to family members uh, who have somebody on this, who is homeless and uh, will not acknowledge their own uh, mental issues, though. And 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 it's it's just so frustrating for for the families. And there's nothing that they can do. You know, it's like they've got to wait till that person is a you know danger to themselves or others uh, to be taken into custody. But otherwise, you know, it's like there's there's treatment that could help these people and uh and and they won't you know and and there's a big gap of trying to get those people into treatment um when they there's there's not a vehicle to um force treatment uh to mandate treatment um you know but um i'm a reporter i'm i'm not a not an activist uh, so i don't take a side on this but i know both sides on it. Uh, and the other side is, you know, I know people who say, it's like, we just got to keep trying, uh, though, because mandating treatment is, you know, um, it's not going to work unless somebody really does uh, invest in it themselves and say, I'm ready to it. And I get that, uh, too. But I also know stories about people who got arrested and got incarcerated. And that's where they got the treatment, uh, though. Uh, so it, you know, mandated treatment uh, does has its, its own success stories and of course working with someone until they come around i've seen that success story too i've seen people who you know were ad- addicted and schizophrenic and one day they just accepted help i thought um sure. you know, so i i've seen both sides of it yeah i, I, I just want to add i want to add to what gary said so here's the here's the problem when you're in untreated psychosis, it's an urgent medical condition. Uh, it, it needs immediate treatment to stop brain damage because the longer a person is in untreated psychosis, the more brain damage occurs and that increases disability and it decreases the chances of a robust recovery because these illnesses are treatable. Recovery is possible. Letting people get so ill, as Gary was describing, and then, you know, not being able to intervene to get them into life-saving treatment is wrong. It's morally wrong. And we need to really take a look at that. And I and we'll talk later about um, SB 43, which is uh, a bill that Susan Talantes Eggman, Senator Susan Talantes Eggman, uh, is now going through the end of the assembly process. And that is to expand, modernize the definition of grave disability so more people can get, they can get more people upstream who are sick like that, what Gary described, um, into treatment, into conservatorship if if necessary, to stop the brain degeneration and get them on a path to recovery. Hey there, San Diego. If you're on the hunt for a way to enhance your health, I have a great recommendation for you. Dorado Nutrition is a company that's all about helping people live their best lives through top-notch American-made supplements. Their expert team has crafted products to support a variety of health needs, from weight management to muscle building and more. And with ingredients like Vodogia Agrestis and Tonkat Ali, praised by a well-known neurobiologist seen on the Joe Rogan podcast, 
These supplements can be just what you need to reach your health goals. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off your purchase by using promo code SD2023 at checkout. So if you're looking for a way to improve your health, Dorado Nutrition might just be the solution you need. Sure. Um, and we've sort of been dancing around um, a more underlying issue over the course of the conversation that I want to address directly, which is, um, and I say this on the podcast all the time when we talk about homelessness, but sort of these, these two you know, schools of thought about the homeless issue, that of the housing first approach um, that seems to have been um, you know, the mindset of, of lawmakers in California for, for some decades now, that, that approach that you know, if you focus on housing first, um, then homelessness will sort of, um, you know, that, that that is sort of the way to reduce the problem. That's the way to mitigate the problem is to focus first on getting people in housing before treating um, other conditions versus the school of thought that says, you know, we have these underlying issues about substance abuse, of, of mental illness, you know, people who suffer from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, et cetera, um, and that these conditions um, have to be treated before we can ever even think about housing these people, before we can actually get these people and to help and getting them to a point where they can actually accept help and, um, you know, be reintegrated into society, as it were. So, um, Gary, you wrote an interesting article back in July um, titled, Is the Housing First Model Helping to End Homelessness, or Does It Enable Drug Users? And um, you, you talked about how, you know, the, the policy has become very political, um, but you um, pointed to some examples locally of how the policy might have some merit um, you quoted Luke Bergman, the director of the County Behavioral Health Services Department, who said that, um, you know, the uh, seeing the prevalence of addiction among our homeless population, seeing the prevalence of mental illness among our homeless population should not be confused with seeing the cause of homelessness. And a preponderance of cases, homelessness is not caused by behavioral health. We know that it's caused by a lack of housing options. Now, many people who I've brought onto this podcast would actually disagree with that assessment. Um, you know, there's there's people who have come onto this podcast, including as I talked about, you know, the mayor of Vista and the leader of several other cities, who say that um, from their experience on the ground, from actually dealing with this issue, that you can't even think about housing people who suffer from addiction, who suffer from these conditions, because they're simply incapable of accepting and receiving help. So I, I want to just kind of address this sort of, um, I guess, debate, as it were, um, and neither of you can take this one, but sort of. The housing first approach um, statewide and in San Diego County specifically, like, is it is it um, premature to say that this policy has failed? And if so, um, how much longer do we give that approach before we kind of move in the other direction? There's no evidence that it's failed. Um, that's, there's there's not there's, uh, uh, you know, and, and this isn't statewide. It's federal. Uh, and and it is. Uh, and it's been in place uh, through Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, and there's there just it just seems a new misconception about it. Uh, and I've, I've seen like uh, an article that said that it's failed because it's, it, it had this uh, lofty uh, claim that it was going to solve homelessness. It never claimed that it was going to solve homelessness. Uh, yeah. And. You can't convince me that housing people somehow created more homeless people. All housing first did was a different strategy about what it takes to get housing. It didn't create more housing. It didn't take away housing, though. It was like uh, – and there's total agreement, uh, too, that people who are addicted or have other issues, they should receive treatment. 
the only issue is should they should should that be required before they're given housing though but the idea is that they will be more successful if they get more a stable life in an environment away from the street away from the drugs uh and you know anyone who knows about a hey knows that the principle is like just be away from the people that are you know uh bad influences on you, uh, though. So take someone off the street, put them into housing. They will have a better chance. Statistically, this has been shown that they do have a better chance of, of going into recovery. It's like, so what's your option? It's like, well, let's just leave the guy on the street and maybe he'll die or maybe he'll figure it out. But the point of housing first, remember, isn't to just solve everyone's addiction. It's to solve homelessness so you've got a guy that is homeless on the street and he's an addict and then you put him in a house some kind of housing and he's still addicted but he's no longer homeless that's the point of trying to solve homelessness it's like yeah would you rather have that guy still on the street or off the street he's no longer in front of your storefront in front of your house in the park he has a house now, and now he might be able to be more receptive to overcoming his drug use. But if he's not, he's still not homeless. Sure, People are overlooking that point. It's like it did get a guy off the street, and now maybe we can also get him treatment. What's the alternative? It's like just leaving him on the street to die, to be in your park, to be on your sidewalk, to be in your storefront – you know, until he finally comes around, and then we'll put him in, into into uh, housing. Though, so that's the disconnect that people don't realize that we're all on the same page here. We think that it's good to end homelessness for people, and we think that it's good to get people into treatment. Though, there's no disagreement there. Though, but you can't just say it's like, oh. Housing first must have caused homelessness. It must be a failure. It's like all the you, all the buildings that have ever existed that were following a housing first policy have people in them who used to be homeless. So how is that a failure? My question is, and I don't know if we can answer this today, but I'd be interested to know. So you made the point, Gary, that um, you know you take somebody who is suffering from a you know a mental um, condition, a brain disorder, or a substance abuse addiction, and you put that person in housing. Um, there are people who would argue that that doesn't really necessarily solve the problem itself. That putting that person behind a door doesn't really solve that person's problems. But what I'd be interested to know is like what is the sort of recidivism rate? Um, what I mean by that is what is the rate at which you take somebody who suffers from a condition, you put them in housing. Does that person end up homeless again um, or do they stay housed? Is there evidence that that person more times than not actually transitions to a stable lifestyle? Um, and does that person, you know, sort of reintegrate into society, as it were, versus that person, you know, uh, they're, they're housed temporarily, but they end up back on the street? Like, I don't know if anybody here can answer that question, but sort of the, the recidivism rate in terms of when you take a person who suffers from um, psychosis, who suffers from a neural brain disorder, who suffers from addiction, you put that person in housing, do they end up back on the street more often than not, or do they end up reintegrating society? I don't know if we can answer that. 
I don't know the answer to that question, but I would like to delineate um, that if you put somebody into an apartment where they can close the door and they're in active psychosis, if they don't get the services right away to start helping them get out of that, get out of that state, um, it is, it is not going to work. It is not going to work. They're, they're, you know, they're not in reality and they cannot manage their day to day living. They need help. They need a supportive atmosphere. So where I don't disagree with everything Gary said, I would just say that you got to remember that somebody in psychosis, it's, it's a state where you're not in based in reality. You need those services right up front with the housing. That's my, uh, that's my take on it. Gary, do you have any comment about sort of the recidivism, as it were, in, in your reporting? Have you like seen any evidence one way or the other that when you house someone who suffers from that kind of condition, whether they end up reintegrating in society or back on the street? Uh, More often than I not, asked that, I would say. I, I asked that question of the, of the local models that we had uh, just focused on the two properties that they bought in 2020. And... Um, First off, uh, Luke Bergman said it's too, you know, it's like too small of a population and too short of a time to tell, uh, though, uh, for a real example. But from what they've seen so far, is that there, there's not recidivism. People who go into these places, they stay into them. They you know, most of the people, I think it was like twelve percent have had left. And all the, of the 12% that left, most of them went into other permanent housing. They didn't return to homelessness, though. But Lindy's also right that um, you know, supportive, you know, permit, it's supposed to be permanent supportive housing, that there should be supports for uh, so, but I don't think that there will just automatically fall back in homelessness, but uh, you know, some, some of the criticisms uh, that I've seen on Housing First was just saying, oh, it's not going to work if you just put people into housing and leave them alone. It's like, yeah, I don't disagree. Some people really need some help, but the point is that they will get it and be more receptive, and it should be more successful if they have a stable environment and we know where they are every day than trying to find people who are wandering around the street in a psychotic state, though they should have access to support services. I, I will add that it's so important for the people that are in this area of this business to understand what psychosis is, to understand the symptoms, to understand that people can recover, but to recover, it's a chronic lifelong brain disease. So like all other chronic conditions, there are protocols that need to be met to for the highest success rate of keeping people well and able to function in society. And I think that that is lacking in a lot of our approaches on how we're housing people. And it's been shown that like more residential situations where there are, are people around, there are supporters who can help with meds, who can help get per- people to their appointments, that sort of thing. That's where long-term success comes in for these people. Let, let me, um, I, I want to make one more point here before moving on. I think just to delineate sort of the disagreement between Housing First advocates and those who oppose Housing First, 
Gary, correct me if I'm wrong, it comes down to something you said earlier, which is whether people should be required to undergo treatment before entering housing services. Is that right? So, so basically like the idea of like, you know, you have to, you know, sober up, you have to receive some kind of, um, you know, mental health treatment before you go into housing services. Is that kind of where the disagreement ultimately is, is in this area of like, you know, do we actually let people into housing even if they haven't um, received treatment? True. Yeah, that's uh, part of the disagreement. They they say uh, you know, it's like we should require it. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a carrot, uh, though. Uh, you want housing? We'll give you housing, but you've got to sign on to uh, getting some kind of treatment. Um, and uh, that could, like Luke Bergman said, but that could be a very, very years-long process, though a never-ending process uh, for people to – with. Uh, uh, with substance uh, use issues that they have to stick with it. It could, you know, they, they may be reluctant to it, but they may come around. And it's a long process, though. So to think that, you know, that they can flip that switch overnight and just say, okay, I'll be sober now. Uh, thanks for the keys and to move in, uh, though. Uh, but the other thing is that the argument that I hear is that this isn't addressing the root cause of homelessness. And the root cause of homelessness is that they have drug addictions. The root cause of homelessness is that they don't have a home. Though uh, there's a lot of people who uh, are addicted to substances and they, you know, they're not homeless. They may have jobs uh, and they're able to deal with their addictions. You know, so, you know, not everyone who's homeless is is an addict and not everyone who's an addict is homeless though. So the root cause of the homelessness again comes down to not having a home because they can't afford a home though. So, uh, you know, the addiction is part of it. Uh, it's very, very related to homelessness for a lot of people though. Um, but you know, if, if you got that guy clean, he's still going to be homeless. You know, he's not going to suddenly have, you know, the income to have a home. Uh, though, so uh, that's it, it. Always comes down to that, that the root cause of homelessness is that a person doesn't have a home, you know, and there's all these other related issues to deal with. But don't confuse, you know, the, the the two or think that this is why everybody is homeless. It's not why everybody is homeless. Sure. I've talked to too many homeless people to know that there's no one answer. For for time's sake, I, I do have to move on, but I want to, Linda. I promise we'll get to SB forty three. But before that, I wanted to talk about. Um, a recent policy that was passed by the city of San Diego to actually ban homeless encampments in public spaces. Um, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't address this at all. Um, I sort of want to get both of your reactions to this policy. Like, do you guys see this as sort of just um, a sort of symbolic gesture, a Band-Aid on, on the real problem? Or is this actually a, a step in the right direction? Uh, Linda, what do you think of the homeless encampment ban? I think it's, a, again, it's very complex territory. But I can understand the need to move the encampments away from schools and play in places of business. I mean, there are things going on that I haven't had personal experience with, and Gary probably has, that, um, you know, are dangerous, dangerous to the people that are using the schools, the kids, et cetera. But on the other hand, aren't we just uh, shuffling people around? I just recently read or saw that um, it looks like, of course, the data isn't all in, that people are moving maybe towards East County. 
So uh, the, the fact that the mayors have come together and that they're looking at this as a regional problem, I think is a very good, uh, very good way to go about it because it is a regional problem. If we enforce the encampment and in my town here also hasn't now has an encampment uh, statute um, moving encampments. If we enforce that, then people are just going to, they're going to move. If they don't get shelter, they're going to move around. So we need to like step back, kind of pull away and look down to the whole region and figure out how we're going to do this. Because just having the encampment thing is not going to, it's not really going to eliminate the homelessness. I've also heard the complaint um, from several reports that actually um, Chula Vista, I think El Cajon, some of the cities in East County are complaining that basically the encampment ban in the city of San Diego just moves homeless people to these other cities. Um, Gary, what's your assessment of the homeless encampment ban? Was this actually a, a positive step in the right direction in terms of cleaning up the streets, or does this just move the problem around and, and have no efficacy? Both those things. Are really <laughs> uh, but I, I heard uh, Mayor Wells and Elkhorn say that uh, he talked to the police chief, and they don't see that there's more uh, – homeless people there following the ban, but there are more homeless people in South Bay. Uh, the, the um, you know, uh, community through hope uh, said that their, uh, uh, that, that their pantry is uh, seeing a lot more activity because there's more homeless people there. So um, look, there's is a misconception about that. Uh, everybody on the street just does not want to go into shelters because every day, Many people try to get in shelters and are turned away. Uh, so the you know the dilemma is that uh, we don't have enough shelter beds for everybody who right. wants them now. So how are we going to force people in, or or promise people that uh, we got a shelter bed for you uh, if you get off the sidewalk? Um, that's why they open up a new. Uh, the safe sleeping site before they uh, started enforcing it. And they have another one coming up. And I do know that homeless people that I've talked to on the street, they say they don't want to go in a shelter. But I said, well, what if there's like a place where you could put, be in a tent and be outside and the cops wouldn't bother you and there'd be some hygiene there? Yeah, I'd go there. So that's not a bad idea to offer alternatives to shelters. Uh, but um, yeah, there's... A lot of frustration that there's, you know, it's unsightly, it's dangerous for some people. That, you know, uh, you know, business owners are just, you know, they're they're filing a claim against the city now because they've lost so much, you know, revenue from, you know, uh, customers yeah. who don't want to come to their businesses now, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, there's a feeling like something's got to be done, but to think that just enforcing it. Uh, and saying you can't be here anymore uh, because we now have shelter beds available. Uh, one, that's not true. They don't have enough shelter beds for everybody who's out. Uh, but um, also, yeah, some like commercial street looks uh, a lot more cleaner than it did before. Where do you think those people went? They didn't go into shelters. Uh, suddenly, some did. It, you know, I've I've read anecdotally some people did say, I guess I'll, I will go in a shelter. And some of the people wanted to go in a shelter in the first place, but they didn't all go into shelters. They went someplace else. It's obvious, though, just number wise, you know, we there, there couldn't have been every one of those people who disappeared from Commercial Street went into some kind of shelter. They went someplace else. Sure. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'll just say this before moving on that anecdotally, and this is just my experience, so I'm not making any generalization out of this, but I've, I've been downtown a few times um, since the homeless encampment ban, and um, I don't know on what level it's being enforced because it seems as though there's still plenty of encampments in, in public spaces just from my anecdotal observation. Um, so I don't know if the enforcement has, if they're sort of putting out warnings or you know, giving people notice that this is going to be coming down. But it seems at least to this point in time that the enforcement hasn't been that heavy handed for for the encampment ban. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but I go ahead, Gary. They also did stress, don't expect this to be overnight, though. It will take take time. So you're not going to see uh, encampments just suddenly disappear. It, uh, they never said that would happen. Sure. No, that's a good point. Again, just my anecdotal observation. So um, I did want to talk about a couple more things before I let you both go, which is um, the the big thing, Linda, that you and I talk about in sort of our conversations um, outside of today has been SB 43 lately. And um, well, first of all, just for people who aren't familiar, can you sort of explain what SB 43 is and sort of the status of the bill right now um, as it stands today? Yes, SB 43 and I'm, I've got my notes here so I don't misstate anything, um, it is going to update and modernize the involuntary treatment, uh, a specific, the involuntary treatment requirements that are currently in the over 55-year-old Lanterman Petrus Short Act, which is the legislation from uh, years ago before we knew what we know now that about these illnesses being brain diseases um, it's going to update that to meet uh, medical necessi- medically necessary criteria. So, for instance, right now, being gravely disabled as uh, defined in the Lanterman Petrus Short Act is that someone is no longer able to provide for their own food, clothing, or shelter because of a mental health disorder. Now, that definition, uh, uh, in conjunction with uh, a danger to self or others is the only way to get somebody into uh, care involuntarily uh, in our state. And unfortunately, that definition in our own county has been defined different ways by different officials at the different times of day. So parents have been told if your adult child is so ill that they're laying on the street with sores all over their bodies if they can reach up to the rim of a trash can and get food out of there, they are not gravely disabled in our county. Well, that's horrible. And that has driven a lot of people into homelessness. So what um, Senator Eggman has proposed is she adds in unable to provide for their personal safety or necessary medical care. So that is a huge plus, and it also incorporates people with addictions now. Addictions either with a co-occurring, addic- a co-occurring disorder, with a mental and an addiction problem, or straight addictions. So why is that integral? Why is that change integral to the current definition? Because we can get more people into care before they deteriorate to the point of being dangerous which is not a medical uh, criteria, which should not even be in there, and get them the treatment that they need before they become disabled, before they become uh, uh, incarcerated, all of those bad things. So 
this is a this could be a huge change. And right now, it has had unanimous uh, voting out of the Senate Judiciary and Health Committee's appropriations. It's gone into the Assembly, and it's had you know again unanimous support out of Health and Judiciary. And now it's in appropriations, and it will be heard August fourteenth. The the uh, appropriations committee will be meeting to vote on it. And advocates across our state are we've been following this bill. We so, we completely support Senator Eggman. She has a huge package of um, uh, bills that are supposed to help kind of redefine, modernize what's going on right now in our state with getting these people into the care, the medical care they need. So yeah. on that note, of course, I'm a supporter. Um, Gary, I want to ask you, and, you're, and I know you're not supposed to take a side as a journalist, but I, I do want to ask, like, in your assessment and from the investigative reporting you've done, like, do you feel as though revisiting the LPS law in general um, as SB 40, as SB 43 um, is trying to do and sort of alter the definition of gravely disabled, do you agree with Linda that this is sort of integral to being able to address homelessness at a statewide, at a county level to sort of revisit this definition of what qualifies someone as gravely disabled and qualifying them for, um, you know, this kind of assistance? Oh, yeah. And I want to say Linda is my go-to person uh, for information like this. Uh, and uh, it's always a good idea to go back and reevaluate something uh, that is basically a law from 1967. Uh, that was, do I have the year right, Linda? Yeah, that's that's right. 1967, yeah, yeah. the ancient days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we uh, yeah, the summer of love. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, it's it's never a bad idea to go back and reevaluate things. Times change, uh, though. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that there should be an argument that uh, for in, in any case when you're looking at at a law that's 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 old uh, and. You know, uh, and I think there was a lot of assumptions that w- was made uh, back then that there would be maybe we wouldn't have the big mental health hospitals, but we would have more small clinics, uh, though. And we don't have that. We don't have as much as we as we should, uh, though. So uh, and and look at the situation now. Like Helena said, what gravely disabled means. It's like if you can reach up and get gar- uh, food out of a garbage can, then you're not gravely disabled. So there's nothing that we can do for you. Though, and and um, you know, I, I mean, I see that all the time on the street. That people uh, they, in, in various degrees, they they uh, need help, but they're dressed. They know where to get food. You know, at what point do you say it's like this? This person uh, is like we we can finally. Um, you know, do a conservatorship on on them because, uh, uh, you know, they're about to die, uh, you know, and I've seen people on the street that are about to die. Mm-hmm. Though, uh, you know, there's like one person uh, uh, I, we, we saw then the next day report uh, photographer and I went out. It's like, oh, she's still alive. She's still here. You know, we were that worried about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 yeah, there's I, I don't think there's. Mm-hmm. The disagreement that's this we could do a better job yeah well and 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 the thing is too just to add in here we're not recognizing this yet in our society as brain diseases we wouldn't do that with somebody suffering from insulin withdrawal you know or any other kind of disease and psychosis untreated is like a slow-moving stroke so are we going to leave somebody having a stroke on the street you know we really need to reset 
how we think about these diseases. You know, well, again, you know. The, the analogy the, the, of uh, the, the part of the law that said if, if you had uh, like three encounters over a certain period of time, then, you know, they, they could uh, do mandated treatment. And, and Lunda said, it's like, if there was a heart condition, it was like, well, after your third heart attack, then we can give you some treatment. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Sure. I have a question for you, Linda. Actually, I don't know if you've done research into this, but I'm, I'm curious. So, like, um, it seems as though everybody here is on the same page that, you know, conservatorships are sort of, um, you know, uh, a needed part of the solution to addressing the segment of the homeless population that suffers from these uh, brain disorders. But I'm curious to know, like, um, sort of and as a societal level, sort of, are you seeing people's thinking on this shift? And also... Um, a second question, I don't know if there's an answer to this right now, but do other societies and other parts of the world address conservatorships and address involuntary care differently than we do here in America, here in California, here in San Diego County? Like, is there a sort of an alternative approach that we can model our efforts after to say, you know, these people who are suffering from these conditions, suffering from these brain disorders, suffering from, um, you know, all schizophrenia, bipolar, whatever it is, um, that we actually take them and recognize them as somebody suffering from a medical issue as opposed to, you know, addressing it as a political uh, question. Um, so, Linda, is there sort of a different model for, for how we can think of this at a societal level? Well, I, I, as a, from a societal level, I do know that um, there's a great uh, advocate up in Hollywood, Terry Morrison, and she's gone to Triste, Italy, if I'm saying that correctly, where they have a very good system for helping the people in their community that are suffering from uh, brain diseases. And also I've spoken to a very uh, incredible guy, Alex Bernard. He's a, a I think assistant professor at New York university who has done a, a massive study on conservatorship in California and also is very aware of the system in France. Now in France, the psychiatrists look to take the hardest cases they in in our country, the psychiatrists shun the hardest cases. I'm speaking in general. Yeah. They don't want the hard cases with people that have, you know, uh, schizophrenia, psychosis. Um, and also we have a big issue. We haven't touched on it. I'm not going to get into it. But the whole insurance structure in the United States where most of the uh, psychiatrists now don't they are not in an insurance system, so people have to pay out of pocket unless they're on Medi-Cal. Um, that's a different situation. That's a whole other show. But I will say, yes, there are some better models. But you know what? We have this information. We can do so much better. And as far as the first part of your question, tremendous pushback from the disabilities rights people in ACLU in our state. Hmm. And a lot of times our officials they they kowtow to these people. And I'm not saying disabilities rights are bad. I think disabilities rights groups do wonderful things. But when it comes to serious brain diseases, they are dead wrong. Sure. They are protecting people's rights to die on the street or in jail. And they do not understand. They're not doctors and they don't understand psychosis, brain disease, and they keep trying to conflate it with um, taking civil rights away, they even filed a, um, a, I don't know, a suit with the California Supreme Court to stop the implementation of care courts. 
Uh, and they have a seat at the table on the care court working group. Go figure. I wanted to, to make a quick, uh, again, delineation. So basically what I'm, what I'm hearing is um, just for people who aren't familiar with the context of what we're talking about with conservatorship. So in a conservatorship, you take somebody who um, does not you know, recognize their need for treatment and you place them in involuntary care um, you know, in a long-term psychiatric facility or short-term or, or however, whatever is necessary for that person to get help they need. So it's um, an involuntary form of care um, that I think Linda and other advocates would agree should only be reserved for sort of the most um, necessary of, of cases, most necessary of instances, not just anybody who, who has a disability. Um, but the pushback um, from the other side is sort of that um, this could be abused, that, you know, conservatorships could lead to, you know, people having their rights taken away, um, you know, not being taken into these facilities without their consent. So that's sort of the concern from the other side. But um, Gary, what I, I want can I just add one thing? So when people go into that kind of care, when they get better, then they take back over their own health care and they take back their lives. It's not like, I mean, it's not like what, what these groups painted to be like coerced, torture, etc. When they regain their thought process and their decision-making capacity, they take back control of their lives. This is not like, dumping them in a dungeon. We don't have those places anymore. Gary, what I wanted to ask you was, and thanks, Linda, for, for, for interjecting that, but I just wanted to say, like, do you agree with Linda's assessment of that there's sort of this cultural issue at play here, which is in, in our culture that we're just not really recognizing people who suffer from mental illnesses, who suffer from, you know, who are gravely disabled in this way, that we don't recognize that as a medical issue, that we're treating this as sort of a you know, maybe, a, I guess, a political or a, a policymaking question rather than a, as a medical issue of urgency, uh, as opposed to the way that we address this in other societies. You know, she was talking about France, I, I believe Italy, places where we recognize this as, um, you know, this is a medical issue, this needs medical treatment. And like these people are, you know, they're not capable of, of thinking for themselves. Like, is, is that sort of a cultural issue that you think is challenging when it comes to homelessness? Or do you, do you see it differently? Uh. Well, it's called behavioral health, uh, and Linda has uh, often said that, let's call it brain disorder, uh, though, uh, because, you know, we look at these things as behavior as, you know, which which implies that this is something you choose to do. It's like it's just your behavior. And um, rather than looking at it as like a, a medical disorder, like you don't have a choice. Uh, though there's a brain disorder. So to look at it as like uh, a bodily function, an organ in your body, you know, it's like you wouldn't, you know, look at somebody with a lung disease or a heart disease as saying, oh, it's just their choice, you know, uh, to, to be that sick. And yeah, we do look at um, behavior as as though it that, that somebody has some kind of control over it when often, you know, they have no control over it. They're in another world that uh, that we're not in. So yeah, you know, uh, it's true that there is a perception that they do have some kind of, um, you know, that it's just a behavior, uh, uh, so kind of a cultural thing. Also, you know, I, I think Linda should address this, but like the the, the issue with Britney Spears and people uh, think of conservatorship as something that's just overbearing and it took over somebody's life who apparently looks uh, really healthy. That's a different type of conservatorship, right, Linda? And people are yes. kind of Yes, that's that's different. 
The type of conservatorships that we're talking about here are the Lantern Petra Short LPS conservatorships, which are overseen by the state, and they're they're limited depending on need. So, for instance, I have a friend whose whose child has been on one for twenty years because he cannot make decisions and live by himself. You know, he needs support and services. And that's not a bad thing for him. It's keeping him alive. He's having the life that he, you know, can lead where he enjoys life and, and thrives in his, in his, um, place, you know. So Gary's absolutely right. That whole thing about Britney Spears kind of denigrated, uh, and, and conflated that kind of conservatorship with what we're talking about, which is more a medical, medical conservatorship. Sure. Um, yeah. In the interest of time, there's one last issue, Linda, that you really wanted to address, and I don't want us to miss, which is um, the care court issue um, in our in our county, and specifically um, the the care court program that was endorsed by Governor Newsom at the state level. How that's being implemented in our county, and sort of how that's playing out at the local level. Um, Linda, do you have any comments or thoughts on that? Yes, I do. I've been contacted by many advocates that I work with all across the state. We are one of the, we are in the first cohort. So we are going to be implementing this October 1st. And as usual in our county, families have not been asked into the process at all. We know nothing. The advocates down here know in San Diego and across, across the state in the other cohorts. I think there's, I want to say five, six, um, nothing. We have not been invited to the table. And you know who? Who are you going to go to when you need help to decide on how to uh, do a program? Are you going to go to somebody who has no experience and just maybe no systems and things like that, um, like an engineer? Or are you going to go to people who have been working in the trenches for years trying to keep their children alive and who know the ins and outs of the system and who are, can be a part of the system, the, the care court? allows parents and first responders and others to petition for for uh, the person to to be accepted into the program. They also are uh, allowed to be a help in supportive decision making if the person allows it. And, you know, I'll tell you something. Advocates are quite distressed. We've heard we've heard nothing from our behavioral health department about it at all. And also we've been going to these trainings the estate uh, contracted with a service who've been providing trainings for supportive decision-making. This is part of the CARE Act. Unfortunately, they've taken a model that is used for people with developmental disabilities. And it's like fitting, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. No, that model doesn't, is not going to work for people in active psychosis. One county, Orange County, I heard an update on, on their um, implementation uh, progress. They're using the LEAP method, which is much more appropriate. The LEAP method is by Dr. Uh, Javier Amador, and it's for people that are in psychosis and don't realize they're sick. And LEAP stands for uh, listen, empathize, agree, and partner. So, no, this model is not going to work. And we, we've been going to these meetings online and typing in, you know, suggestions. So I'm very concerned. 
I had very high hopes to this. I wrote a uh, an editorial when this this process started that was published, and I want this to work so badly. But from what I'm seeing and the people that have a seat at the table, I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I don't want to see it as another failed AOT venture. Sure. I mean, at least this one emanates from the state and is the counties are ordered to implement it. But sure. anyway, that's my two cents. Um, before we close, Gary, I want, I want to get your your thoughts on sort of care court, um, how it's being implemented at the county level, if, um, and, you know, in your reporting, if anything that Linda was saying sort of like resonates with your observations or uh, what's your take? Oh, I'm disappointed to hear from, uh, you know, that Linda's saying that they're just not getting a response from the county because uh, I do think that uh, families and people like Linda should be, you know, uh, more, uh, you know, uh, better resources uh, for them to, to you know, put this together. Um, you know, I, I have hopes for it to be successful in some people, but I also think that don't, don't overplay it. Uh, though, don't think that this is going to just clear the streets of homelessness. Uh, though, um, you know, if if it helps uh, some people, that's going to be great. I think that there, you know, there there should be you know concerns about uh, you know civil rights, so that we know that this has uh, its its own limitations, and it seems to have that. It's you know it uh, it. Looks to me like it was pretty well thought out in in that realm. But though it's always good to have safeguards and have people giving a little pushback on something to make sure that uh, you know there aren't any issues on it. Um, but uh, you know, I I'm hopeful for it uh, to you know be a step in the right direction. Uh, I've seen like what I've called baby steps before, like we try to do something and it doesn't do much, but it does get treatment for some people uh though but um you know just to not not to have too high expectations about it uh i i think that there's still a lot of work to be done sure in closing i just want to ask both of you i i know this is a very honestly heavy topic um for all of us and so i just wanted to sort of put a positive spin on this to, to close which is um for, for people who are listening to this going okay great like you know this seems like an overwhelming you know problem like on such a scale that it seems like an individual person can't do a lot about it but linda and gary i want you to both think and you can think about this for a second before you answer but just how um, people listening to this podcast people who are um sort of tapped into this issue um can make a difference individually in terms of um, whether it's you know supporting a bill whether it's um you know uh, petitioning for for some kind of change in the law whether it's um, you know, donating to a cause like is there is there a way that, you know, we as individuals here in San Diego County can actually um, make a difference at an individual level, at, at a communal level for this problem, how we how we can actually, um, you know, be a part of the solution, be a part of moving forward on, on the problem rather than just, you know, sitting on the sidelines and, you know, complaining, arguing, et cetera. Like what's what's sort of the individual takeaway from from this? Um, Linda, go ahead. I would say there is a lot of th- there are lots of things you can do. So you can follow the bills. You can educate yourself on what's going on. You can write letters su- to support asking your uh, senator and your your assembly people to support different bills or you know what you find that you think would help rectify the situation that we have right now. I mean that being politically active is not that hard. 
And I know that NAMI California sends out action alerts so that it's very easy to fill in, you know, your, uh, your information and they, and then just send it off. It's not a really complicated process. Also, you can make sure that you read the news in our region, in our uh, city and just keep your, your finger on the tabs. I wish Gary was still with the S, the San Diego Union Tribune because his articles are, were always incredibly informative. And he and others on the San Diego Union Tribune cared enough to do an incredible 26 page report on like a day in the life of somebody trying to get services in the county. I highly recommend you go and read that if you're listening. Excellent. You, you will learn so much from that. So yes, there are many things that you can do. Keep yourself informed. Look where you can help. If you can go and then down to a more granular level, level, if you can go down and help a shelter, serve food, do something like that, every little thing helps and can make a huge difference in your fellow human beings' lives. Sure. Gary, um, any thoughts as to sort of the individual takeaway from this? Well, first, thank you, Linda, for this. But we we have another reporter who's is our, uh, who's great, and he's been there a while. And I just talked to him yesterday, so I'm helping him with ideas and sources to continue uh, right. coverage of uh, of homelessness. And uh, people want to help, uh, though people you know will not know what to do, and they'll go out and they'll give out sandwiches or water, and that's appreciated by the people. Uh, who are on the street. Uh, nobody is dying of starvation on the street. They're, they are dying of other things, but uh, there is food. But, uh, you know, it, they may only get one meal a day. So um, people do appreciate that, you know, if if people do go out and, and deliver food. And there are many groups that do that. However, there are other ways of helping. You can, uh, Father Joe's is looking for volunteers all the time. They have like an auxiliary group that, uh, it's full of volunteers, uh, rescue mission also. Um, go to the regional task force on homelessness. Uh, I think it might be rtfh.org. Uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah. there is something on there to uh, how to help. Um, and uh, once a year also, uh, the task force uh, does that annual count. And it's uh, it's grueling. you got to get very early in the morning. I hope I don't have to do it again uh, next year. Um, but uh, they, they need volunteers all the time. And I've talked to volunteers and they say it's very eye-opening because they talk to the homeless people and they find their stories, uh, though. So that's a way of getting better informed uh, and, been in, uh, and connecting with some people who are already helping. And also, I, I mentioned uh, something the rescue mission was doing uh, was called uh, Walk With Me, which was a volunteer program that they had where they would train volunteers to be outreach workers. And now Lucky Duck has picked it up. And I think it's called Be a Friend at those. So might go to the Lucky Duck website to learn more about it. Um, don't have it at the tip of my fingers. But um, the idea is to get volunteers who will go out. And I think this is a great idea to um, to be uh, like an outreach worker on a one-on-one scale with somebody and find out what do you need, you know, and and – Keep at it. I am very encouraged. Uh, about, um, it, it just 
that that there can be successes. I know it's easy to get discouraged. You can point to failures and and say, why is it still like this? But, uh, you know, I've I've heard too many heartwarming stories about seeing people's lives turn around. I've met these people, uh, their house, they're sober, uh, they're stable. Uh, Sometimes it's because one person contacted them and helped them. And so, so, you know, keep that in mind. You know, it's like I, I, I know somebody who was blind and one guy found that he needed cataract surgery and he helped him and he's not blind. Wow. Now. So, uh, you know, there are ways that you can help. Uh, just uh, do a little research, find out what's a good fit for you. Yeah, I think it's easy to yeah, get so discouraged by this problem when you look at just the, the scale of what we're dealing with. And it seems like with the, the numbers that we talked about at the beginning, you know, the problem's always getting worse. But um, it's important to remember, yeah, like the, you know, the fact that, when you know, when you actually step in, when you help, when people help at the granular level, as Linda was talking about, that that does make a difference, that one person can make a difference. And then that's part of the reason why we're doing this is because it's not just about complaining about the problem or, or arguing about the solution, but it's also about, you know, taking those practical individual um, steps that actually, you know, advance progress, that actually move people forward, that actually, you know, change lives. So um, really appreciate both of you coming on. Again, Gary Worth, formerly with the San Diego Union Tribune, recently retired. Um, and then we had uh, uh, Linda on as well. And just thank you, Linda, again. I know this is your second time coming on. So um, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it again soon. But um, thanks to both of you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. This has been another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego with your host, Steve Weyer. Thanks again to our sponsors, Max Lux Media, maxluxmedia.com, and Dorado Nutrition at doradonutrition.com. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into the show. See you next time. Stay classy, San Diego.